coming to get you, Barbara. Be afraid. Groovy. We all go a little mad sometimes. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your friend. My argument is kind of a bitch. I have to close my eyes. Did I open them? Hold on! What do you say? It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Hello and welcome back to Gavin Steph versus the Forces of Evil, where each episode we delve into another dark corner of horror to select a genre, subject or topic to dissect and submit an entry to a guest judge in an attempt to win a point that will total up through the season. Joining me as always, a man supposedly made up by a scientist from the finest parts they could find, the brain of a professor, the hands of a pianist and the firm buttocks of an Eastern European ballroom dancer, Gavin Thomas. How are you doing? (laughs) Well, you know, if we just change those around, <laughs> have the buttocks of a scientist and they're, uh, the brain of an Eastern European ballroom dancer. Rather than that, I'm very well. <laughs> Good to be by. So this week we're, we're delving into something a little bit, well, a little bit more meatier, should we say, a little bit more um, of of the horror genre. It's, it's, the, it's the meat and potatoes, isn't it? Yeah, you know, we, we're discussing gothic, and uh, for me, we've picked two films today that absolutely define gothic horror for me, because gothic splits into two very distinct camps. There's the over-the-top, very camp, moralistic kind of uh, gothic horror, you know, the slightly more histrionic version. Then there's the subtler, the darker, the more psychological uh, and in kind of both of the films we've selected hit all those notes really, really well, I would say. But for you, Steph, what what defines gothic horror? Um, I, I, I thought quite a lot about it, and, and to quote Jimmy Rabbit from The Commitments, I'm, I'm fucked if I know Derry. Um, <laughs> it, it's just a vibe for me. Like I, I thought it's hard to nail down, because every time I tried, I could think of a really prominent gothic horror that doesn't really fit the box that I'm trying to create. Because it, it's, it's just a vibe. It's got the old haunted house or creepy castle thing going on. Generally, you've got a bit of a damsel in distress, incredible suspense. But yeah, beyond that, I don't really know. Yeah, I think as well, because gothic is used to describe so, so many things. So uh, an ex-partner of mine who uh, had studied gothic literature in university had a very clear view of what gothic was. And I think some of that, the kind of the histrionic, the very melodramatic stuff in my head, that's what it is if you think about the early gothic novels like The Castle of Otranto. But then, you know, gothic is also, you know, all the girls I fancied when I was 17. And they don't really have a lot. They don't have a lot to do with. (laughs) That hasn't changed. Girls girls and boys. It's generally the the artist. You don't see many crimped hairstyles now, you know, in my age range. But uh... (laughs) well, I I imagine a full Elsa Lancaster haircut just in a in a rock club. Oh yeah, it's going to catch some glances at least. But it's not just us having this discussion. And the reason we pick Gothic Horror, because our guest is a librarian. And in my head, Gothic Horror is to do with libraries. 
<laughs> but, but more than that, our guest, Ben Taylor, some of our very first guests, and is our very first returning guest, Ben is the host of the House of Hammer and Rated H Pods, and is generally a wonderful human being. But Ben, what defines Gothic horror for you? Well, thank you for that lovely introduction for a start. But um, for me, it's all based in the aesthetic, So, uh, which is ironic considering that uh, Gothic horror is derived from Gothic literature, which obviously doesn't have an aesthetic because it's a printed media. But for me, it's about the physically imposing settings. It's about shadows and secrets within usually ancient buildings. Usually a haunting comes into it. It doesn't have to be a literal haunting. It could be an emotional um, haunting as well. Um, there, it tends to be set in places that are large yet can still create a sort of claustrophobic atmosphere. You know, things that hide in the shadows. Um, plays on 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 the, both the sounds of, of of silence and nature. So you know you're talking wind, thunder, lightning, animal howling. Um, this for me the the best sort of examples of, of of gothic horror involve the sky. So imposing sort of skylines, clouds. Uh, again, sort of doubling down on that claustrophobic setting. Um, so I can't separate it from 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 the aesthetic nature of it, but uh, you know I'd echo what you've both said. It's quite difficult to pin down. I think it's quite subjective as well, in terms of what you've been exposed to, in terms of your your watching or reading history. But we we all have a, a sort of a, a feeling of what gothic means, but it is very difficult to necessarily sort of put that across to other people. I think we've picked up on the same traits ourselves, but. Um, and, and then you sort of bring into it and the films that you've picked, uh, uh, you sort of uh, really exemplify this a lot. Uh, I think I think women are really important in the gothic setting. And, you know, I think I think um, sex, I think strong female characters, females who are either the, the um, sort of emblematic of, of being a victim or themselves being a threat. Uh, in a variety of different ways. And I'm sure we'll get into that uh, when we're talking about particularly ab ab about one of our films. Um, but yeah, so there's a lot of elements uh, in there and it's it's a really interesting question. You know, and I think uh, when you're talking about uh, the sky being important and those kind of things, when I almost picked a film that I think Steph would have had the uh, absolute... Uh, disagreement with because he might have argued it wasn't horror but I almost picked the Lawrence Olivier whether uh, whether in heights initially because I think it can particularly the novel is gothic horror there's absolutely when she's scraping at the window that is an absolutely horrific scene in the book no I would I completely agree when I was speaking to my wife who is you know is she's an English graduate and a writer in her own right about this topic and Wuthering Heights was one of the first things that she mentioned I thought Gav's just trying to jump on the Kate Bush bandwagon now that she's making a comeback. <laughs> Popular with the kids right now, sir. Yeah. <laughs> you no know, one ever wants to discuss the first two albums, though, you know. Like, uh, I, I'm going to upset you, yeah? I don't want to discuss any Kate Bush albums. She, she falls very much into the thing for me of people. She She's also, like, we've, I know we've had discussions about Radiohead. She's one of those ones that people talk about this so passionately and so on that I just don't get. I get like three good songs. Yeah, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, Gav, 
That's the millennial <laughs> crowd lost. <laughs> uh, before I upset you anymore with my music opinions, which is where we differ the most, um, do you want to tell us your pick for our gothic horror theme? Certainly. So I'm going to discuss an imaginary sequel to one of the most famous pieces of horror and science fiction literature and uh, also possibly one of the defining movies of gay cinema in The Bride of Frankenstein. So we find ourselves in the final moments of Frankenstein, the film, not the book, where Castle Frankenstein is collapsing to the ground or the laboratory is collapsing to the ground and the monster is assumed to be under the rubble of the collapsed building. So I think this is a film that defines Gothic horror for me, and I'm going to try and capture that in three very broad uh, sections. So my first one is called Of Gods and Monsters, which is a line from the, uh, the film itself. But it's a very iconic film, and it's iconic for a lot of reasons. It's iconic because it almost sets the visual style for horror films for 30 years. It's only really when the 70s come along and the horror films all get a bit grittier and grimier that the, the, the visuals almost kind of uh, stop being so influential. But there's 40 years of influence, essentially. It's also set the aesthetic for rock bands. All of, you know, and I am an aging goth prog punk, God knows what. But, the, you know, that aesthetic is absolutely iconic for rock music as well. And as I said, you know, it's a, it's a very visual aesthetic for people who want to dress in a particular way, you know. And I spent a large chunk of the late 80s, early 90s going to watch bands like The Cult. And and you, you would see girls who genuinely did look like uh, Elsa Lancaster in those gigs. So I think it's just massively iconic for the visual sense as well. But I think James Whale has also done something fantastic. It's a film that is, you know, it's it's designed to drag the people in, but he does such brave visual things with it as well. The the clear influence of German expressionism, you know, particularly the scenes when they're out at the broken laboratory and it's all done in shadow and it's it stands up even now. It apps, you know, it's a film that's nearly 100 years old and it looks so visually fresh. It's also iconic for the character design. You know, Ken Wells Lancaster's Bride is, well, one of the most recognisable horror characters now, despite, you know, the passing of the time. When you talk about Frankenstein's monster, you, you vision Karloff. That you, you think of... The bolts and the stitches, and that's not what Shelley describes in the in the novel in any way, but that's what you imagine. And also, I'd, and I might be really, really reaching here, but you know, Pretorius. Well, the scene when Pretorius arrives and he's got a hat and he's in shadow. Well, that's when Max von Sydow's character arrives in The Exorcist. It looks very similar to me. That it's. And I think that's a deliberate thing. I don't think that's a, an accident. And even down to there's a scene when Karloff is, has escaped 
and he throws himself down to have a drink and he catches the reflection of himself and he realises the true horror for the first time. Yeah, Think how many times that scene has been replayed in cinema. Think how many times all these things turn up in other films all the time. It's... And, and James Whale's direction is just absolutely brilliant for me because he knows when to really push it up. You know, he knows when to turn her up to 11 and he knows when to drop it down. And it's now we're in 11 minutes long. It's not a long film, but he packs so much into that hour and 11 minutes because everything just looks, well, it looks perfect. And both the films we're discussing today, the black and white is almost luminous. It's the blacks are so black, it you know, kind of and literally shades of grey because it's monochrome TV. But the the use of those shades of grey is so effective, and there's loads of really kind of fades and dissolves, which become a a standard for horror cinema. I, I just think it's a horror film that absolutely defines horror for decades. And I, and it's been a while since I've watched it. I don't think I've watched it for 20 years prior to watching it again for this. And you just forget how much everything on that screen forgets everything you love now. So that's my first take on it. It's just iconic and there's very few films that can argue with it, but... Ben, what's your take on uh, the iconic status of Brian Frankenstein? Well, I mean, it is just that. It's iconic. And um, I would say if, um, if, if if there are people out there that haven't seen the film Gods and Monsters, which is uh, based on, on James Will's uh, later years, stars Brendan Fraser in arguably his best ever role, um, it, that's definitely worth seeing because it, 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 it sort of falls back a lot uh, towards this film. It's definitely something I'd give a... A highlight too. I should also say as well for the uh, <laughs> for, for the reasons of clarity, I am reputedly uh, related to Elsa Lanchester. Um, she is a, a cousin of my grandmother, um, which has never been proven, um, but uh, is is a long standing family myth that has been uh, investigated only partially. So, um, but that is what I've been told is that we are related. Um, we can state that as a fact. No, I think we, we, let's <laughs> just put that. Let's just pretend it's absolutely cast time. But I've been told that many times over the years that we're related to her. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, there's the, the the gothic horror sort of ideal runs throughout this. So you know, the fact it's a lot of it's filmed on sound stages and in sets adds to that sort of um, uh, you know claustrophobic setting. Um, you have characters, obviously Frankenstein's monster is mute, although he learns English throughout. You have a blind character, so that sort of sensory deprivation thing feeds into the the whole feeling of, of the claustrophobia and the sort of the, the trapness that we have in the film. It's very elemental, you know, Frankenstein's monster is terrified of fire. There's thunder right from the off. You know, Shelley and and Byron are in a castle, and there's 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 thunder outside that kind of brings them you know, sort of around the fire in this huge gothic castle in which they're residing. Um, the whole sort of film is centered about sort of a couple of things. You've got sort of old money in terms of you know you've got this sort of Frankenstein himself is kind of a yeah, he's a member of the aristocracy, but is he really? It's it's kind of on the, the sort of outskirts of of, of that. He, he, you know, he's a scientist. He appears to be rich, but he's not necessarily so. 
and the whole thing is kind of filled with regret and and that kind of uneasiness that goes with it you've got this monster that's haunting a village it to the point of as you say you know we we, we he died in the original film and he's back now so there's this kind of thing about is he alive or is he not it's very much that sort of ghostly haunting thing that you get in a lot of gothic horror films um and yeah the the, the whole gods and monsters line is is perfect because that's what the film you know is very much about um I would say the only thing, the only element of this film I don't like is Una O'Connor, who plays Minnie, who is very shouty and looks like she belongs in the pantomime rather than on the on a big screen. But even even so, I can still accept that. Um, yeah, I really like this film. Um, I, I think it's uh, it's 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 timeless for a film that, as you as you said, uh, is a hundred years old. It has a lot going for it. The, the, the iconic look of of um, of the bride, considering she's in the film for like what, eight minutes. Yeah, you know, I mean, how, how to transcend time from you know an eight minute, effectively a cameo. I mean, I know Elsa Lanchester is it. She you know she plays uh, Mary Shelley, so she's in the beginning of the film as well. But but as that character, she's in it for next to, to no time. It's um, it's it's rare, you know, with, without being too sort of uh, you know talking in hyperbole too much it's it, it's rare to be able to look at a sequel and say because it is a sequel and it's one of the very very early sequels if not the earliest sequel um to say that it's as good as the original but it's certainly it, it what i like about it is it carves an entirely different path and it's left an entirely different legacy and it feels different to to the first film and 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 i think as a pick to talk about gothic horror it's a better pick than frankenstein is yeah. because of the elements that you've talked about so no i i i really like it i i think visually it's better than the franken than the original frankenstein the, the sound stages are, are fantastic i'm I, you know, kind of getting this i'm stretching into hyperbole but i can't think of sets that are as good looking from mm. that period you know from that 30s period and yeah you know, i'll get onto the acting but yeah una o'connor is mm. Yeah, it's, it's a, a bit of a distraction. Certainly. Just, a, just a touch, but but in the same way, I think it needs that levity, you know. Because I think I think I think actually, you know, despite the fact that she's tragic as an actress, I think that the film benefits from the fact that she provides perhaps even, you know, not entirely intentionally that bit of levity. It you know it it, it releases the tension a bit in a, in a film that is is quite otherwise oppressively unpleasant. Because not a great deal of nice things happen in this film. In no. fact, hardly any. So the I, fact that she's there to ham it up for a bit and go, oh, Christ, she's a distraction, you know, really adds to it. And I'm going to be setting off Steph's uh, alarm here, but the characters aren't massively likeable on the whole, are they? You know, Pretorius is quite unsettling. Frankenstein is, just, yeah, you know, it, uh, it's fairly easily won over. And, you know, at least she's is like relief, like you say. Gav only watches films where he thinks all the characters are absolute bastards. That's the only <laughs> every film we've watched. Nobody's massively <laughs> likable. Like, <laughs> I'm starting to reflect on you a little bit, Gav. <laughs> well, you know, if we were discussing Raiders of the Lost Ark, I'd say exactly the same thing. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Steph, yeah, do you think it's an iconic film? No, it, it's a camp gay gothic comedy horror. It's like you just listed off like the things. <laughs> if if I like as you have got a partner, so I'm not on Tinder, but it, things that I like, 
you would have just been ticking boxes all the way down. I'm absolutely, I, obviously, I loved it. It's great. Um, he said that the scene catching his reflection has been reimagined in the greatest film of them all, of course, uh, Monster Squad. Um, <laughs> I, I think you talked about the sets, but the effects are actually really good as well. I don't know if you're going to talk about it later, but the the your mad guy with the little people in jars, it, it's absolutely superb. That doesn't look like it was done in the 30s. Like we've watched films from the early 2000s where the effects are definitely a lot worse than that. Like yeah, it, it looks that magical. Scene. That's I the worst scene in the entire film for me. But well, uh, I'll, I'll go on to the worst scene later on. I think that I think it looks <laughs> magical and, and and fantastical. I think it, it is beautiful that scene. I, I really love it. Um, that, that's the only bit though with the sound design that I done because I hate that little squeaky voice and the rest of the sound design for yeah. the film is brilliant. Um, I, we, uh, Ben's already touched on how, how iconic the bride is. It's one of those things that everybody knows. And we talked about um, a couple of episodes back how some of the best characters in horror seemingly have the littlest screen time. Uh, we, we talked about Jaws and Hannibal Lecter. And, you, know, you can throw people in that, that the best characters don't seem to have ended. And she's got virtually none. Like, this is a film that I knew and that I've watched numerous times and I'm always... Like sort of, where is she? Wait, and then it is so little at the end that you, oh yeah, this is this is it's almost time up now. Like you, you kind of want like she's the title character, but we don't see, and it it kind of adds to it. It adds to the effect. It's not it's not a bad thing. It's very good because she's so such an iconic look. She looks so great when she turns up. It's worth the wait. Um, But the only thing is, Ben, I completely disagree that um, Brent Fraser's. Best ever role is, of course, in the iconic 1999 film classic, The Mummy, which is... <laughs> well, it's, it's, you know, it's a toss-up between the two, clearly. <laughs> I love The Mummy. I want you to hear anything said against it. Oh, yeah, I think you're on safe ground here. You know, we've both discussed how much uh, I love The Mummy as well. Classic. Uh, you know, I'm going to be really controversial and actually say I enjoyed the sequel better. I thought oh, The Mummy 2 was Yeah, was Mummy Returns is better. I agree, yeah. yeah Mummy Returns I, would, I wouldn't go as far as better. I think you're pushing it with better. Well, it's good. It's not better. <laughs> oh, it drops, wow. so, drops off a bit for the third one, though, I've got to confess. Yeah, I'm not, oh, not a big fan of that. He's not in that, though, so we're all right. But, not even with the rocks, are you, bro? Is that enough <laughs> to win your own few? Oh, no, I'm not a fan of the, the, the like, the... Third one, the mummy's tomb or whatever the emperor's tomb. That's awful. Yes, yeah, but well, we talk about bad CGI that came like almost a hundred years later. <laughs> but they are definitely worse than anything in the Bride of Frankenstein. Once again, we've managed to uh, be pushed under one of our favourite topics quite easily. <laughs> but I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back to uh, discussing the Bride of Frankenstein. My second area that I'm discussing is called "It's Alive." And it's focusing on the acting. Now, the acting in this will be, well, you'll either feel one of two ways, really. You'll either think this is absolutely ridiculous over the top, or you'll understand it for what it is. And for me, it's perfect. The acting is perfect because I'm... Well, I've read a lot of very early Gothic literature and all the characters in Gothic literature are archetypes. There's no subtlety. There's no suggestion. It's all dialed up to about 400. And that's what the acting is right from the start. From the framing story, where I haven't noted down who plays Byron, 
but he appears to, well, he appears to be playing to a municipal theatre somewhere, and he's mm-hmm. making sure the entire theatre can hear every single word. He's projecting like nobody's business. And the acting is very much of the style. Uh, I grew up watching lots of 30s films, 40s films. My grandfather was a John Ford obsessive, so I'm used to watching acting that looks like that. You know, lots of John Ford films, early John Ford films, have lots of similar acting. And some of the actors, and I was convinced that uh, uh, Una O'Connor was actually in How Green Is My Valley to the point where I had to go back and check and realise she wasn't. But, you know, there are actors and actresses like her in those films. But the acting is brilliant. You know, Karloff, I think this is... This is what he does. The, the monster, Carlos' performance of the monster is superb. And, yeah, it is camp and it is hammy, but it's meant to be. It is designed, well, it it's acting for people who would have been used to seeing acting like that on the stage and on film, but he brings something else to it. He absolutely brings something else to it. There's a, a physicality to Carlos' performance which I don't think they ever get better. I, uh, people playing monsters in films, I don't think they've ever quite captured that physicality. Maybe Christopher Lee in the Hammer Dracula films, where, again, you get the, the sense of physicality. But other than that, I really, really don't. And then he's surrounded by people who are giving very different performances that actually, like... Uh, a, a good framing devices for his performance. So Ernest Feisiger, uh, I'll probably hugely pronounce as that, Fessinger, who plays uh, Pretorius, that is uh, that is absolutely top draw acting. And, yeah, it's a bit camp. It's meant to be. It's a, because what he really brings is the sinister. He, I can't think of anyone quite the sinister as him in any other film, you know, kind of, it reminded me of so many other horror film act or performances as well. You know, visually, you've got the guy out of uh, Paul Geist, whose name completely falls out to me. That uh, there's the visual references there with the hat and just a drawn out face. Oh, the reverend. The Reverend, yeah, reminds me of the tall man from Phantasm. You know, <laughs> he, he's he's just absolutely just setting down all these kind of ideas. And I, I just think it's such a great performance. And apparently he was like that in real life. Thessica, he was absolutely over the top. and was a war hero, but was, you know, kind of a war hero who introduced embroidery and uh, cross-stitch to the British Army as a way of therapy, therapy. And just apparently just lived his life like that and was one of the first, if not openly gay actors, was openly bisexual and didn't really hide it from anyone. And I, But his performance, more than the campus, there's this, oh, there's an undercurrent of something. And when he's trying to convince Frankenstein to get involved, I'm just don't get involved with him. He's clearly absolutely insane. <laughs> Wrongen. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he's a wrong all the way through. Yeah. <laughs> he does it with such relish. 
And the, the bit when uh, they meet in a tomb and Frankenstein who's learned from the blind man, he's saying, friend, friend. And I'm thinking, come on, no, he really isn't. He clearly isn't. He might be giving you a bit of chicken, but that man is bad. And I love the acting all the way through it. And, you know, Elsa uh, Lanchester, your cousin, how many times have yeah. been? <laughs> clearly. <laughs> Her two performances are great as well, because I think... She, she's remarkably restrained as Mary Shelley, which is, you know, considering the guy playing Byron appears to be in an entirely different film, she's she managed to be quite restrained as Shelley then. And then when she's a bride, it's she feels unworldly, you know, unearthly, otherworldly. There's just a, a something about her, her eyes, her everything is just it's a remarkable performance, which she doesn't say anything, she screams. And she looks uncomfortable, but it's, it's, it's quite a performance. And I think compared to some 1930s acting, it, it's a lot less mannered, some of it is. I think the, the level of relish with which they take that on is just, well, remarkable. But, yeah, so for me, the acting is a strength. Ben, Steph, what about for you guys? I, I think that you, there's something you said that's really important to pick up on there. This is a hugely transitional period for cinema um, and that transition from the stage to the screen because the, the, the differences are massive. There's a fantastic interview with Jimmy Lee Curtis who talks about how um, she was uh, trained to be a stage actor and uh, then found herself on the set of a film actor and and didn't know what to do you know she'd never been taught that it's sort of about close-ups and the fact that if you scratch your nose on a film it has to mean something as opposed to scratching your nose on the on the stage where people can't see it and you know you're sort of making your mark and, and you know and even just down to how you talk and and, and sort of uh, emote differently and you know at this period of time they're, they're going through that process you know they've got to, to change in their style actors and, and I think we see that happening in this film. Um, and very much so, I think, you know, you, you've picked up on uh, Pretorius. Is, you know, he's the pantomime villain and almost literally play, played as that, as you would see on the stage. And But it but it works, and it works brilliantly in this film because, you know, for, for whatever reason, that's what this film desires. But it wouldn't work in every film. And I, I think what I would say is, you know, I'm not going to say much more, but if you're watching this with someone who you think, well, are they or aren't they, a, you know, a film fan in inverted commas, I'm not being too pretentious about it, but if they find the performances laughable, then they're not appreciating, I think, what's going on entirely here in terms of, 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 of what's happening on screen. And I mean laughable in the sort of most condescending, awful sense, not laughing and sort of understanding, you know, how actors work, but if they think, oh, this is just a joke, then... I, I, again, you know, this is a hundred years ago, and and it's a transition from effectively one media to another. And I think the acting of this Una O'Connor, I can't begin to pretend that she's doing a good job because she's not. You know, despite the fact that she may have been a great stage actor for all I know, but um, elsewhere on the screen, I think you know that they're, they're doing really good stuff. And um, yeah, I, I I think it's focusing on the acting is a really interesting thing to look at in this film. 
it's the contrast between the two as often as like you said, Pretoria is so over the top and so sort of he, he really embodies this man professor in, in everything that he does. Everything is over. And then Karloff and Manchester are just that they, they put their performance across without really having any dialogue. You know, Carlos learning words as Frankenstein. There's a, a few to put that performance in without being able to say anything shows how good an actor you've got to be. Like as an actor, quite often like your voice is such an important tool, especially uh Gav, me and you are Welsh. I'm sure you've been inundated with Michael Sheen videos over the past couple of weeks now that we've qualified for a World Cup. So we know how big a voice <laughs> performance can be. To have to put that performance in becomes such an iconic character in everything that you do without saying, really, without, you know, saying a sentence then. It is absolutely fantastic. I agree with um, the comparison to, to maybe Christopher Lee, although in the films where Christopher Lee doesn't say anything, it becomes a little bit schlocky and silly, but obviously we know the reasons for that. But then it does give me the idea, Gav, that we need to pitch to somebody of Frankenstein AD 1972, because Frankenstein in a disco hanging out with a couple of hipsters, I don't know about you, but I think that's got legs. I think that... <laughs> um, uh, also, yeah, but you know who they'd cast as Frankenstein in that, or if we did uh, James Colden, it would be unmarchable. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Nicolas Cage. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'd watch that. <laughs> um, and um, he might be giving you chicken, but the man is bad, I think is a slogan that Colonel Sanders used with in the 70s. I think that was... <laughs> <laughs> I'm unsure that he does it with plenty of relish. Might have been one as well, but I'm not. <laughs> so well, moving on from the, the acting, my final section uh, focuses on the other bit of what makes a great film is the story, or in this case, the multiple stories. And I'm calling this section Write the Moral Lesson, which is what Shelley says to his wife. So... I think the framing element's really, really interesting. So clearly, Shelley, the, we've all heard the story. There's God knows how many films made about the story. Shelley, Byron, Mary Shelley, Paul Dory, they are they're in Switzerland. They can't do a lot. They write horror stories or stories to amuse each other. You know, Shelley, Mary Shelley, as opposed to Percy Bysshe Shelley, is a fans, fascinating character to me anyway, in a kind of... She more or less invents science fiction as I think she was 18, 19 at the time. You know, she writes the defining science fiction story because Frankenstein is science fiction. It's not horror, really, in many ways. And then her daughter more or less invents modern feminism and you know, political uh, political suffragettism and all this, and, and her son-in-law, William Godwin, is one of the most interesting philosophical characters of, the, uh, the, of his century as well. Uh, and I think it's quite interesting having Shelley, be, Mary Shelley, be in front and centre and saying, oh, this is where the story goes. And I also quite like the fact that they retell the story of Frankenstein from her point of view, of course, her Frankenstein, nothing like the film. You know, it ends in the Arctic. It doesn't end with... Uh, the laboratory burning down, but people don't know that. You know, people understand Frankenstein to be what James Wales' film version is of it. So I think that's quite interesting, anyway. And then when it says write the moral lesson, well, 
this is a moral lesson, isn't it? You know, this is the first story. This is a story that the vast majority of people watching it in you know 1931 or whenever would have understood it to be. It's about you shouldn't be meddling with things that aren't there for us to be meddled with. It is a lesson about science and about science overreaching itself and about how just because you can do something doesn't mean you should to uh, to paraphrase Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park and it focuses on lots of that you know it at one point it says oh it's blasphemous and wicked you know society is still Christian at this point predominantly people still go to church and it is and Pretorius says you know kind of I'm doing what God, the same as God, I am creating life. And he's, he's very explicit about it in the way that Frankenstein perhaps is. And Frankenstein, Professor Frankenstein, thinks he's he's undertaking a scientific experiment where Pretorius understands what he is. He is replacing God. But there's another story at the heart of this. With, and, you know, it's a bit of a reach, but it's, I'm not the first person to say this. Mark Gatiss has said this to himself. It's a story about being an outsider in society. It's a story about being on the fringes of society and about whether or not that's acceptable and whether or not people will accept you. And as you said, Ben, uh, James Whale and his... Uh, his sexuality is makes for a wonderful filming of Gods and Monsters. But... It's at the heart of this as well, James Whale's sexuality and and just being an outsider in general and, and the blind character, the fiddler, as much as that feels a bit schlocky, is also there for a really, really important film because he is without prejudice. And that's the key character. That's the character which the only character which really understands what's going on because he's, he doesn't have any prejudice. He just understands at the heart of this, we are human beings. We have to interact with each other with kindness, with respect. And that's what he's trying to do to the monster. And that's what Whale is pushing with the whole story. Just because something's different, it should be respected. It still has a right to be respected. And at the end, when... Pretorius says, well, if that lever comes down, the entire thing will be uh, destroyed. The only good moral decision made in the entire film is made by the monster, the outsider, because he says to, to Frankenstein and to his wife, go. And then he says to Pretorius and the bride himself, we should have stayed dead. He understands that there are good decisions to be made, and he makes it. And that's the only time in the entire film, which, and that's the other moral lesson, that just because something is horrific, it doesn't mean it's bad. Just because you don't like something doesn't mean it's bad for, uh, for everyone else. And and I think that's really, really brave in a film in 1930 or 31. You know, you think of all the other films from that time, and it's only, you know, there's some transgressive filmmaking in the 30s, Todd Browning's Freaks, for instance, but mostly it is massively moralistic storytelling. Dracula is moralistic. Frankenstein is moralistic. But this this is moralistic, but it's also saying something else. So I think it's, it's great storytelling because it's storytelling that can be read on so many levels. And 
perhaps I'm reading something into it that isn't it, but I am convinced that I am reading a, a very real lesson from it. So Ben, you're a man who understands literature. Is, is it classic storytelling or is it, uh, is, is it quite the simplistic tale at heart? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a tragedy. I mean, that, that it, it, you know, as he said, the, the monster is the one with the moral of a hand at the end. And, you know, if you've got your, your antagonist turning in the last act to basically admit that what he's doing is wrong or his entire existence is wrong, then, yeah, I mean, how can you view that any, as anything other than a tragedy? Um, there are a couple of other things I'd like to pick up on and what you said there, which are, you know, really, really good and important points is that um, there's a film, uh, as as you've mentioned, I, I, I co-host uh, um, the, the House of Hammer podcast and we're working our way through all of the uh, the films of Hammer Studios. There's a film we're about to come up to in a couple of episodes time called The Four-Sided Triangle, which is about a... Uh, um, two guys who create a replicator a re replicating machine and uh they use it to uh, uh do something which is um again it's it's that god versus man thing and uh, it opens up a whole sort of moral question about about what people should and shouldn't be allowed to do and that's very much at the heart of this as well um and, and i i think that uh you know what you've got with this is um, something that um, has sort of transcended. You, you talked about it being the first science fiction film, and I, I don't necessarily disagree with that because that, that's what made me think of it. But what you've got with this is it, 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 it's, it's moved beyond that into something that um, has governed not just um, a genre, but it's moved into the popular culture. So you talk about, you know, we, we view Karloff's Frankenstein as Frankenstein, and we view um, you know, sort of the depictions of Dracula that we saw from Universal as Dracula. Neither of those are what were written on no. the page. My, my, my son read Dracula, uh, uh, well, against my <laughs> advice. I mean, I, I'm, I live in Middlesbrough, which is very close to Whitby, which is a huge part of the Dracula um, novel. So I, I read it when I was very young, and I've, I've told my kids for years, it's very boring. It's great, don't get me wrong, but it's a slog, a real slog to get through. And my son wanted to read, and I said, no, by all means do, because it's a classic, but be braced for how hard it is to get through. And he read it, and um, afterwards, I think, was left reasonably dejected, thinking, well, I'm not getting the feeling that I expected to get from that. You get the feeling from the films, and yeah. the films are someone else's interpretation of the novels. And I think that goes back to what you were saying about this. Uh, you know, when you're talking about Shelley and 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 and, and Frankenstein, um, so yes, it's um, th th there's a lot going on here that uh, is sort of outside of the uh, of the realm of, of necessarily what was intended. But uh, but no, it's it's good stuff. And yeah, and you're absolutely right. You know, kind of Dracula is a 19th century novel, and it's very much in that style, isn't it? You know, it's a an epistolatory novel. It it's nothing like the film. And no, absolutely Frank not. No. And Shelley's Frankenstein isn't like the film. Shelley's Frankenstein is very much a film about the dangers of science. This is mm -hmm. this is deeper. This is more about human relationships and everything else. But Steph, you you love a, a subtext. What's your take on the subtext in uh, in Brother well, Frankenstein? 
I completely agree. We've talked about this before. I think almost all all horror is, you know, you you're outsiders and you're freaks. Anytime it touches on those emotions, anyway, and especially looks for empathy, it's always got that tinge of something along those lines, something of someone who's. I mean, we're all the same ourselves. We're all the geeky ones or the outsiders or the ones who were a bit strange, the one who didn't fit in. It's why it it it's all so well for us, I think. You know, I've brought this up numerous times on, on the podcast. I remember I pretty much did a, an hour-long monologue talking about it when we did ginger snaps. So this is exactly what horror is all about. You talk about the blind character. I think the blind character is superb, and you said he may be a little bit old. I think it's excellent. Like, him and the monster are the only two decent characters in here. And like, I mean morally decent, not like the Welsh Valley's sense of decent. <laughs> a good moral compass. So even with with Frankenstein, the only killings that are sort of undeserved, shall I say, are, are you know accidents. Either because he can't understand or he can't communicate. You know, he very rarely kills someone who doesn't come at him first. You know, you, you've got your girl in the lake that he's trying to stop from screaming, and then suddenly, you know, he's, he's on he kills Minnie's husband uh, fairly deliberately. I think. But only yeah. But after they they kind of burnt down his house, tried to kill him and go looking for his bones. I, I think I think I can class that as self defence. He hoys that he hoys that old bird down the well pretty convincingly. Yeah. I mean, again, fully <laughs> <totally> deserved. Excellent use of hoy as well. Yeah. yeah next <laughs> but that's exactly what he does. He does literally hoy her. But we're not booking. Guests from the northeast without them using terms like "hoy" down there. So no, I'm, no, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's, that's the whole it. reason. <laughs> Too right. Uh, I am glad, Gav, that you pointed out that Frankenstein is quite is a science fiction book rather than not horror. So we know that you at least tried to make sure that you didn't pick a horror, like despite your best <laughs> efforts, because we know that that's a long running theme. Every time I ask you to pick a horror film, God knows where you're going to come back with. Well, I have picked horror films this season so far. I'm, you know, Urban Legend is a horror film. Admittedly, you know, Morin isn't, but... Uh... I, I still don't know what that was. I'm still <laughs> like... <laughs> but yeah, we, we've got off to a better foot on this season than than in the last one in actually picking things that fall into the horror genre. But I, I, I at least admire your attempts to not in this one. <laughs> but you have a rebuttal, so why, why isn't this a great gothic horror? Well, I don't want to give Ben more of a reason to pick your film, but it's really very hard to put this film down in any sort of way. I will say we've already touched on it, but our friend Una is definitely one of those reasons. <laughs> I don't, I, I, it's a very much a, a Britishism, and I said before, I know we've got some American listeners, but she did my tits in. From the time she first appeared on the screen, she very wicked witch of the West, but in all the worst kind of ways. Um, the first few minutes of this film don't really sit well with me. I'm not a big fan. I found them a little bit silly, a little bit poorly done. I think it's a little bit overacted and a little bit unsubtle. And they do that thing that um, bad impressionists do to remind you who they are, they regularly say each other's names. So we'll wander into the room and he'll say, so Mary Shelley, I see you're right. 
You guys have been on holiday together for a week. You already know who you're talking to. Come on, we don't need this. And it, it kind of feels a bit like um, an American drama where it was like previously on Frankenstein. And then we give these little <laughs> clips of what happened the last time. And I kind of get why that's there. I know why that's there. But for me, it was just very annoying. But I will say, from the moment we go looking for him in, in the ruins, from the time he, he falls through, uh, it's very hard to pick that apart. It's very hard to find something you say, well, that doesn't really... I know you, you picked out that, that scene, with, but I thought that was absolutely fantastic with the, the, the people in jars. I thought that was superb. Uh, Gav, I am surprised that you picked this as yours because I know you're not a big fan of comedy horrors. And I think this definitely falls in there. It adds a lot of comedy moments. I think sometimes you've got to look for them a little bit, but I think there's that underlying humour throughout it all. I think it's only comedy in the way that lots of 30s films have light relief in them, because that's what the audience would have expected. I don't think it's comedy, you know, in the same way that what we do in The Shadows is quite deliberately being funny. If you watch 30s westerns, there's a comic relief character in them. If you watch 30s war films, there's a comic relief character in them. That's what people in the 30s expected. You know, in the same way, in the 80s, everyone expected people to have sex and then for the man to have a shoot over him, but the woman not to. You know, they are the tropes of cinema. <laughs> you know, and, and the comic relief character is the 30s trope. You know, I have watched a lot of 30 westerns. 30s westerns and there's a new you know there's a, a there's a mini in all of those as well there's just that that's the 30s so i don't think this is comedy i i think at the heart of this this is a tragedy oh un- undoubtedly but again it's two sides of the same coin comedy and tragedy i think someone said uh i did stephen king said comedy is when something falls on someone's head and tragedy is when it falls on yours and i think that that's that's the only difference between the two. So my pick for um, our gothic horror is uh, a governess who watches over two children and comes to fear the larger state is haunted by ghosts and that the children are being possessed by them. This is the innocence. I, I suppose I had better clarify as well, Gav, this is the 1961 innocence because I believe there was a film like two years ago that was also called The Innocence. Yeah. And I looked that up. I definitely know that one. I don't want to. <laughs> I'm glad I watched the right film then. Oh, oh imagine that! This this was like when we went on to um, the um, the Tom Cruise podcast. I forgot what the name of Cruise Cruise Views Cruise Views. And then just as we started, he said, um, "Which one did you watch?" And I was like, "Ah, oh, shit! <laughs> Didn't know that was an option. <laughs> did not know I might have watched the wrong film." Yeah, well, I reckon we wasn't going to watch the film about the craze uh, well, on a Tom I, Cruise I, podcast. There, there was, I was going to say, first of all, there was a marvelous cleaning of this film with Tom Hardy in, but then I didn't realize there was three different kits available for the. <laughs> and then we were like, I just kind of watched what was on Amazon. Anyway, um, my first chapter I've called It's All a Bit Billy Eilish Around You. Um, the sound on this film for me is absolutely incredible. It plays such a, a major part. We talked about uh, Karloff doing Frankenstein and doing it without, without speaking, without really. He does it all with sounds, I suppose. It's the opposite of what I was going to say. Um, from the very off, this starts off. We've got the the whispering 
and then the creepy singing. And it's always creepy when kids sing in films, regardless of whether it's horror or not. I mean, Pamela Franklin playing Flora, this absolutely nails it. It's absolutely chilling when she sings. And we know the kids are creepy little fuckers. And she brings it by the bucket load uh, from the very off. And I, don't get me wrong, um, uh, Stevenson, who, who I forgot his first name, uh, playing Miles, is more than a creepy little fucker as well. Like, they, they, they both pull their weight in that regard. But the sound on this from beginning to end is superb. There's the whispering, there's the singing. We've got birds chattering and rivers babbling. It's like a creepy ASMR video for a lot of it. The last thing it's going to do is make me sleep. But it cuts between the two things of something that's generally quite relaxing, suddenly taking on an unnerving edge. And it means for me in this, I can never, ever settle. Like, and sometimes they're there, and then they'll just slowly die away. You know? And I think there's one part with this sort of bird song in the background, and then it's just suddenly not there. And as I said that, I've realised how chilling that was, because I just got goosebumps. I've watched this again today. I watched it a few weeks back, and I watched it again today. But everything about it, say, it, it settles you in. And then it does something that creeps you out. So the next time you can never get settled. You can never relax into the film because you never know what's going to come next. It does what I think films later on kind of try to do, that when there's nothing happening becomes more unnerving and terrifying than when something is. So the paranormal activity kind of touched on it, but in a way that could never reach the heights that this one hits. And so that... See, it opens on a whisper that turns out to actually be something that's going to happen further down the line. But for me, the first part is that sound. That sound from beginning to end and that occasional no sound at all. The music box. When is it? Right. At what point did music boxes become creepy? Because if <laughs> for my whole life, the 36 years that I've been alive, there's never been a music box that isn't creepy. I'm not saying that this invented it, but do you ever, either of you ever remember a time you didn't look at a music box and not think, oh, you know, you obviously you meant to think that's really cute and nice of there and nothing that is some creepy shit getting out of my house. It's so simplistic melodies. So there was a thing with music boxes because of the very nature of how they produce sound. They can't have really complex melodies. And a lot of those folk melodies do tend to be a bit kind of creepy and you know set you on edge. Oh, it definitely does. It, 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 it's horrific. I genuinely can't remember a time where that wasn't something burned into your consciousness. Even when I was a child, before I would have been overly exposed to this kind of thing. It's always been something that's a little bit not good. I don't know who these people are. And now I've said it again, like I, red trikes are now also um, any any kid that's got a red trike in a film, someone's going to die. We already know this. No one's ever had a red trike and just merrily rode it around, I don't think. So someone, someone's either going to die or fall off something rather big. Like we, we've, we've all seen the Omen, we've all seen The Shining. This isn't going to end well for you, kid. And the cuter you look, the more chance it's going to be you. The, the music box is, is indicative of a lack of control, though, because how many uh, sources of music can you not just turn off by just touching it? And, you know, you open a music box and it goes and 
you know, it goes until you shut it. Um, and if you leave it open, it continues to go. Whereas we're used to sort of we control putting the music on and putting the music off. You know, we're not sort of um, you know um, allowing this the object objects to to sort of uh, tell us um, sort of what's going on. I I, I think um, I, I really like what you said there though about 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 the film and you know about it, it, it sort of um, the sound. Um, you know, it's 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 art, isn't it? You yeah. know, to be able to create something through sound or a lack of sound um, is really clever. And you know, I I completely agree. You know, the absence of sound sometimes is as effective as as as, as producing sound. I would slightly disagree with you about paranormal activity because I think it does it just as effectively. It does it in a different way, but it but it does it. Just as effectively, I love that film. I love, in fact, the first three films. They're all pretty darn good. Um, and I think they they use. I'm not saying they're direct influences of this, or the you know, I'm not saying that they look at this and say that, that that's an influence. But I think they use the same um, sort of uh, audio uh, or audio sort of um, influences or tropes as this does, in so much that they they know when to not produce sound and they know when to start pumping in the white noise or whatever it happens to be um but yeah it's uh yeah the the the, the sort of the the audio element to this is um is very important oh well you kind of it's it's kind of cutting edge stuff though there's a lot of early synthesized sound manipulation uh, that uh, daphne mm. or ram does uh, and it's you can hear it and it's quite unsettling because there's lots of fairly standard orchestral stuff and you know you've got a an old folk tune, and then occasionally you'll just hear sound will be modulated ever so slightly. So, like, there's a bit one bird song, and and they just go through a couple of phase shifts, and it's just a really weird sound. And it, you don't, it's not even that obvious. And I was listening with headphones in this watching with headphones in this morning, uh, for a second watch on the way into work, and it was, you could hear it really heavily on the headphones. And it was a bit, oh, you know, I'm on, I'm on a commuter train on the south coast. There's nothing really scary to happen. But it did kind of throw me off a little bit. And, and I think that stuff, well, it becomes massively influential because lots of the same techniques are used on the birds and it becomes almost irregular if you want to be unsettling. Electronic sound manipulation is the way forward. And I don't think it's the first example of it. I think uh, Forbidden Planet probably uses it slightly earlier. I'm quite, I might have got my chronology wrong. When, when this from 61, I think. Uh, but, you know, it's very, very early use of that kind of thing. And, the, and then by the time you hit the, the Giallo films and everything else and the, the horror of the 70s, that's what horror music sounds like. It's, uh, it's hugely influential in terms of that. I um I just want to clarify as well. I'm by no means putting down paranormal activity because they're some of my favorite films as well. <laughs> Again, I I am, but uh, <laughs> I knew you would. Um, <laughs> not for me. Every every I would say year or so, I um Google Katie Featherston to see if she's done anything since because I think she's absolutely incredible in those films, and the answer is almost always no. So like, she's probably she's banked the money, Steph, and uh, follows yeah. off into the sunshine 
you know, as as we do all would. It's it's an hour and a half of someone going boo. I'm I'm just no, it's not for me. No, it, it's an hour and a half of waiting for someone to go boo. Ah, yeah, absolutely. The, the the third one is a masterpiece of modern cinema making. It's the the bit with the locked off camera. I'm telling you, Steph said the same thing about Final Destination three, which I watched recently, and I was. He's also he's also right. I'd like to check <laughs> that in. Now now we're booking the right guests. This is. <laughs> <laughs> Um, my second chapter, I called um, "Hello Tension, My Old Friend." Um, <laughs> the thing about the innocence as well—it never takes the shortcut. It never takes the easy ski. And again, that's what the music helps to do because we never get those. I talked about this uh, probably before last, where horror went to that phase where scaring people meant doing a really jarring, high-pitched noise as someone appeared in the background. Uh, urban legends that we covered does it continuously as someone puts their hand on their best friend's shoulder and I'd I, I said at the time but you know if there's someone going around killing people just say their name just just call me you don't need to slowly creep up on me put your hand on my shoulder and then say my name because that's going to scare the shit out of me I might get you killed I'm just going to say self-defense you know <laughs> if you get killed in that scenario that's your own fault but this Slow. The law would support you in that step. Just saying. <laughs> Look, it's the Frankenstein defense. You just say he deserved it, and then <laughs> covers everything. Um, but yeah, it, it uses that. It just slowly runs up tension that builds into crescendos. We've got little ones. It, it's a slow burn but in the sense of never being boring. It's not a slow burn where nothing ever happens. Although, arguably, it doesn't, which we'll come to our third chapter later. But there's always something going on. But it's never over the top. It's never a big burst, never a jump scare. There's never anything sort of big. It's always just this little failure that burns constantly throughout. I've never been so scared of windows. Every time... (laughs) I am terrible. I'm not even Salem's Lot, almost. Like, yeah, that's, I'll that's just see Salem's Lot. Or, go- or Ghost. <laughs> but uh, it's terrible. And then sort of that scene with the, the face in the window at the end it is, is terrifying. It's one of the greatest scares for me. And again, I talked about Goosebumps earlier. I've, I've watched that. And then it is like, so your whole body goes cold. And it's such a simple mm. shot. Amongst a film that's got so many sort of shots that are not simple and especially not for the time. That one is so simple, works so well. I absolutely love it. Um, it's kind of unusual the way they use the ghost as well, because again, they don't pass in fleeting moments of was it there, was it not there? We linger on ghosts, we see them. They, they stay there, they stay back, whether they are there or not in reality is a thing, but on screen, they are forever looking back at you. Um, you talked about the, the sound or the sound wavers as well. We talked about those bird songs and how that changes. The, the, the cinematic choices, the, the, so the, the tempo changes within a scene that happen. We've got angle. So it, it, it's excellent. The cinematography is, is out of this world in creating that. Um, Everything's it's cinema, everything's sort of widescreen, and it gives them the option of 
we've, we've got characters on opposite side of the screen. So it, it, that kind of throws you off trying to trying to stay with both at the same time. Sometimes the character you want to look at sort of in the background and we've got something that's not really that important in the front, but then suddenly becomes really important because it creates a whole different scene in the way that they shot. There's heaps of darkness, heaps and heaps of darkness that you don't know what's lurking in. And then our characters are sort of contrasted in bright white. I've I, I read today that apparently um, you use spotlights so bright that, that they were wearing sunglasses between takes just to, to put up with just a, it's incredible the way it, it, it shot it, it almost doesn't look like film it, it, it's you said oh, but it's art like the, the cinematography and this the way that it creates things the way it frames them and you talked about influences uh on your film film gav del toro put this um as one of his top six favorite fright flicks when he was told to pick his, his best horrors or his favorite horrors and you can see the the impact that it's had on him as well when you watch things like the orphanage and, and like the devil's backboard it, it's so similar there's so many homages and tributes and the nice ways of saying things that he's nicked um yeah it, it, it it's a fantastic film for me one of the best but that um the tension that it manages to create by just lumping all that together just little tiny things in some cases works so well and it means that it's mesmerizing for the whole time that it's on film. What, what's your take on it, Ben? Um, just pick up on a couple of things you said there, Steph. Um, I, I, going back to what you said about how it was filmed, um, intentionally they shot the sort of the a character in the foreground and a character in the background because apparently the way in which films were being produced at the time meant that the films came across as very sort of two-dimensional. So they did that to create um, the the sort of the, the look of 3D. And as you said, that absolutely pumped the um the light on the the, the characters in the background to make sure um that occurred but yeah you're absolutely right i mean this film is unnerving from the first frame and the fact that you can't tangibly put your finger on why yeah. is why this film is an artistic masterpiece you know the setup is unnerving she goes to see a guy about looking after his children and we're unnerved and we don't know why is it to do with the sexual tension between her and him? We don't know. We're just unnerved about the whole prospect of the thing. You know, she arrives at this big Gothic mansion. We're unnerved. Why is it? Everyone's friendly. You know, the, the housekeeper's friendly. The daughter, um, the, the little girl she's looking after is friendly. We don't know why we're unnerved, but we're unnerved. You know, then, then the other child arrives and we're even more unnerved. Mm. And we really don't know why. And the art of this film goes down, and there's an awful lot written about this film, not all of which I agree with. I'm not a massive fan, despite the fact that I've studied film theory, I have a master's degree in film. I I really object to a lot of <laughs> sort of film theory. I'm a big fan of, um, of people uh, giving their subjective opinion and admitting that it's their subjective opinion. What I don't like is people passing up off sort of... Um, what they think is objectivity as definitely the you know the right this is definitely the right point of view. Um, but what is said a lot about this film is that um, the, the 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 sort of the nanny, the housekeeper, is sexually repressed, and what happens in this film is a projection of of whatever is happening inside her. And um, what I would say is that towards the end of the film, what we have to ask is, you know, were we legitimately unnerved? as viewers from the very beginning or were we sort of kind of projecting her 
unnerved nature right from the beginning as as what is happening so were we tense because she's tense is kind of what i would ask um i think that's that, that's a fair question she's like the anti mary poppins isn't she really she steams in there <laughs> you know and you know and we, we think oh well this is all well and good oh god it's not because she's not as happy and go lucky as we think she is but um yeah it's um it's there's there's an awful lot going on in this film and an awful lot to enjoy and an awful lot to sort of um, work through retrospectively. You know, in terms of the tension, I wrote down three films that it reminded me of in three different ways. And one of them, Steph, you're going to uh, be outraged by, but I'll, I'll get there. So the first one reminds me of Rebecca, similar kind of time period, similar kind of thing where... Does you know where the building has a an animus as a an energy to it, and they're very much that. So I think there's a lot of that in there, and that raises attention. You know, the building is a character in the same way. You know, we talked about this on the your first episode that we did together, Ben, where we talked about the house in Rosemary's Baby almost being a character, and it's the same with this. So there's another film, perhaps, as a parallel to it. Then the next one, in the way ramps up tension, and you're not quite sure why, is the Japanese ring, Ringu. It just, it's an unrelenting, just, just growing tension, and the sound design, everything else does that. And then the third film that it reminds me of is Picnic at Hanging Rock, in that there's this weird, hazy... <laughs> <laughs> weird, hazy, dreamlike quality to it, but with all this kind of repressed sexuality going on, or is it repressed, or is it just something else? And, and I think it does all of that so, so well. You know, this is a hugely influential film, and it's a slow burn. It, and it's a film, for me, that, you know, it's film made in the early 60s. It's a melodrama without being melodramatic. It's a psychodrama without playing the psycho part of it too much. It's it's really, really just fantastic filmmaking. Just absolutely superb. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I I know this is a an audio medium and I did all that, but I the thing that I met a note that I wrote it says Gav mentions picnic at hanging rock. And I can <laughs> I know I kind of know what you're getting at. Obviously it's a lot better a film. But um there's that kind of that weirdness without it being weird as well. So that like the the boy marching around giving his his performance in the living room is very strange. It's very odd. Yeah. And it is unnerving but it's also weird. Like in anything else, that's not far off. Your guy, your, your guy in the uh, tricycle during the the League of Gentlemen thing we watched. Like it's very similar in tone. <laughs> and then obviously we've got this relationship between the young Miles and the nanny that that sort of culminates in that kiss at the end. And that's very strange. That's incredibly weird. And uh, that that kind of tension runs throughout the film. I, I flinched at that. When he kisses her, I genuinely flinched. Not it was even pink. he kisses her, she kisses him. Yeah. Well, yeah, I suppose, yeah. It happens both ways. Yeah, and it's she, she, she kisses him and he she the other way around as well. She kisses yeah. him. Right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's very odd. So without it being over, you wouldn't say, oh, it's such a weird film if you talked about it, but there's so many weird, strange elements in there 
but they saw so sort of they fit in so well that again it becomes unnerving rather than ridiculous. Oh, I, I wrote down the words itchy and scratchy about 40 times, and not because I was uh, well, I bought a lot of Simpsons over the weekend with my son, but that's what makes you feel it's just a little twitchy little it's 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 not a film that ever lets you settle into what it is. It it's it's very, very well made. Well, Deborah Kerr's quietness cast from the original uh, character in The Turn of the Screw because mm. she's considerably older because it was a 20-year-old. Yeah. And um, so there is that kind of... But I mean, you know, I don't want it to be too crass, but had the characters been the other way around and it you know, been male or female, it would have been completely unacceptable. Yeah. Um, then and now, I imagine. Um, and, yeah, it does... I, I completely agree, though. You watch that kiss at the end and... With twenty twenty two sensibilities, you think, yeah, this is a yeah. difficult watch. <laughs> it, it is a bit weird with the casting because Miss um, Miss Gross um, makes a lot of references to how young she is. She keeps saying, "Yeah, a, a, a woman as young as you doesn't have to be like, well, she's not that young." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, it's a bit of a, an odd casting choice. Uh, Gabby Caldwell Frankenstein giving um, an aesthetic for rock bands as well. And this had a, a scene pretty much lifted for a Nine Inch Nails video, um, which is the tower scene. So, um, yeah, it, it, it seeps through. But that, it, that's not all it's influenced, obviously. But, um, yeah, on the rock front, they, they, they pretty much stole it completely from what I remember. Um, my final chapter is called uh, Guess Who's Back, Back Again, because I've said it for Final Destination. I've used it a million times elsewhere as well. I said Final Destination are the two greatest villains in death and mental health. And I think mental health is the major theme, again, that runs through this and runs through a lot of my choices, which, again, I don't know if that says a lot about horror or a lot about me. Um, but, you know, I've, I've been quite upfront about the, the things that I've gone through. And it, it is always one that, that it's home. Kids and mental health, I think, are the two that I go about. That, that's real horror for me. And what we see in this film is that slow descent into madness of Miss you know, Deborah Kirk does fantastically well. She sort of slowly unravels as the film goes on. It's almost Shining-esque in, in places, and I don't know how much of an effect it had on Kubrick when it came to, to making his, but you can see that, and not because of the things that are inflicted upon her, because we're not sure. Gav, I know you love um, an ambiguous ending, and I think this is the one where we never know whether those things really exist or whether they just internal and she projects them onto the kids to mm. finally try and get them to accept it in the end i mean even she doesn't accept it at first she looks for assurance from elsewhere tell me that i'm not going tell me that like, these things are there and they kind of tell yeah well they must be why, why, why would you say and that's when it then ramps up because now she's got the acceptance of others that these things might exist that's when she really starts to unravel and really starts to unwind they do that really well. I mean, um, Clayton did, did mental health very well in, in a few films that he did. He, he really did madness and mental health in a, in a fantastic way, better than most um, people, especially around this time. I mean, there's still directors who get it very badly wrong now, but I think he did that very well. And the way that scene where she's sort of walking over the candelabra is fantastic anyway. And then we get those voices sort of echoing around her that we never know if they're voices within the house or voices within her head. Um, Miles said to, says to her, 
about the the ghost when they start to you know they go away and they they talk about the um the daughter and the effect that it's had on it and he said you were afraid maybe you made them so I think it, it it's dotted throughout it that maybe the things that we see are not actually there and that's where then as well when that sound cuts in and we see the tilted views and strange focuses and angles the more they become or they become more prevalent throughout the film as that madness starts to kick in so Gav for you as someone who loves an ambiguous ending are they ghosts in real life or are they something that's haunting just her I, I no, well, it's it's the Babadook for me. It's 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 the same thing. I've watched Babadook, I don't know, a dozen times, and at the end of it, every I've I always change my view. So I watch it once and say, well, it's just her insanity. That creature doesn't exist, and then another time I say the creature exists, and I was like that with this, you know, kind of I watched it watched it twice in prep. First time, definitely ghosts. Second time, nope, mental health. Yeah, it's the ambiguity is so cleverly done because, like you say, the way it just lingers on the the female ghost by the lake, yeah. uh, it must be there. And then the point at the end when Quint waves, waves at Miles, or oh, does he wave at Miles? Does he wave at the, does he uh, wave at the governess? You know, it's. It's very good, and it's brave storytelling. It's it's brave filmmaking, you know. Kind of film hadn't really had well, you uh, English film, certainly American film, certainly hadn't had it. It's all two moment at that point, you know, and and to make brave stylistic decisions like that, for essentially what's a bit of a a pot boiler, you know, the the Henry James story it's based on, it's a it's a bit. Yeah, creaky and gothic in a in a different way. Ben, um, I, I have to say, right, and I've been talking a lot again with my wife about this. I interpret this really literally. Um, I just saw the ghosts. Um, yeah. I didn't pick up. I've I've read a lot about this afterwards. Um, this is the. I, I will sort of step back and say this is the first time I've seen this film. And, and, I'm, and I'm really thankful to both of you for um, giving me the opportunity to see it and talk about it because I've not watched this before. And it, it, it feels now like a big sort of, uh, um, you know, a, a film I should have watched before, sort of a, a big missing page on my on my film watching history. Um, and I watched it and I, I just saw it as a ghost story. And I, even to the end, I saw it as literally as that um, there was a possession and the kid had died because he'd been possessed. And afterwards, when I read about the fact that the film had been torn apart by critics saying it's this, that, the other, I was quite sad. You know, um, I don't know why, because, you know, films, I, I just thought it was what it was. And, um, yeah, I mean, you, you, know, you look into it and, yeah, there's an awful lot going on and, you know, you, you can apply all this film theory retrospectively and you look at what the script has done and the the the, the, act, the sort of directors have done and the actors have done and you can see there are two narratives there if you watch it again, which I have done. Um, but I, I like to view it as a literal ghost story uh, and, and, you know, I, I think that that's maybe more down to my sensibilities is enjoying 
things that are just maybe more two dimensional. But um, yeah, so that's where I was. I watched it and 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 kind of thought, yeah, he's been possessed and uh, hasn't lived through it. But uh, yeah, there's 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 arguments in many directions. I suspect. I, I think you know, kind of myself and Steph have this discussion about everything. I like the ambiguity because I like films that kind of leave you feeling almost. I'd like to walk up to a film almost thinking, oh my God, I'm not sure how I feel. Mm. And yeah, and, and that's what I like about this because you left feeling like that. But you can read it like a ghost story and it's a fantastic ghost story. It's as good as a ghost story gets. In the same way the Babadook, it was a great ghost story or it's a great film about about mental health. Yeah, and The, the thing is for me, the, the, the Babadook was... I came out of that, and that I completely agree with you that I, I only read it, that as a film about mental health. It was only for me a film that could be interpreted in that way. And this film, genuinely for me, I could only interpret in the literal way in which it had been sort of projected. I, I, I didn't see the symbolism or whatever you want to call it the first time around. And you know that that yeah, it's again we go into these things with subjectivity and whatever, but um, I I just for all I've I've taught this film up and I you know and I acknowledge all the good elements about it and stuff, but I only see it as that ghost story. I just don't see it as the other side. It's funny because the first time I ever watched it was exactly the same. I only ever saw it as that. Then the second time I watched it, I saw the same. Gav, you'll know that I'm usually like. I'm the Bosch guy. Like, put it on screen, Bosch. Like, that's what it is. Get it on. I don't like the ambiguity of an ending. I can stay in the house and, and make up my own film on whatever ending I want. I don't need someone else to do that for me. I, I don't want to go to the cinema. To, well, guess what happened at the end? Like, I, well, I might as well. I can guess the whole film if that's where we're going to go. Like, I've, I've got quite a good imagination. So I, I, I like it. The whole ends tied up. But and the first time I watched it, yeah, I watched it. It's a fantastic ghost story and it's really creepy. And you feel sorry for that that poor woman for that no one else can see what she can see. And then the second time I watched it, it was clearly about mental health and she's clearly unraveling. There's clearly something there before she even gets it because she says, well, I, did, I didn't know if I should take the job. As I, and then she talks about her father and the effective father because I want to help people and whether they want to be helped or not, that's what I have to do. So you've clearly got that there. And then I feel really sorry for this woman because she sees those ghosts and no one else can see them. And so it, it hits me in two very different ways. Because the first time I, I, I was creeped out and terrified of the ghosts. And then the second time I was much more empathetic even because that woman's clearly suffering. And But either way you watch it, I think are two absolutely fantastic films. And so Gav, I know that generally I've slagged off ambiguity. Uh, this film is the one that makes me see it. I like it in this one. Well, and you know, I think that's great. And, but... In an absolute reversal of me, my kind of issue <laughs> with the film is that it's too subtle, and that's my only issue with it. It's too subtle, and if we and if we're talking about the psychological drama, then it's brilliant. And if this was us comparing psychological dramas, it wins because I can't think of many psychological dramas. It it's worse than. But if we call, if we say this is gothic horror, and you know, I've read a lot of early gothic novels, and they are over the top and they are barking mad, 
Wuthering Heights barking mad, the castle of Otranto barking mad, absolutely over the top villains. There's no villain in this. It's 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 it's, it's, it's there's this just twitchiness to it, and that's the only thing with it. That's why it's not a great gothic horror film for me, because it doesn't have that over the top gothic sensibility, which for me is part of of gothic horror. Other than that, it's one of the best films I've watched. Well, I've seen it before, but I've watched it for a while, and it's one of the most satisfying films I've watched in years. It's absolutely brilliant. I'm going to disagree with you saying it's one of the best films. I think it's two of the best films, because you can watch <laughs> it twice in entirely different senses, and it's still just as good. It is gothic horror. The dual imagery, everything that goes with it, it's, it's littered with ghosts. I mean, if you don't want... This, is, um, this villain is so bad and so horrible that some of the characters won't even speak its name. It's the Voldemort of horror, but we won't touch on Harry Potter <laughs> for reasons that I won't go into on this podcast. But they're too terrified to even acknowledge he ever existed, nor that he still might. The kids are terrified to speak to him. When they speak to him, the people who know speak about him, they speak about him in whispered tones and, oh, he was a terrible man. It's, it's an a awful villain. You say it's one of the one of the most terrifying villains of all. They won't even speak. But it's too it. subtle. It's too it's too subtle. It's too subtle. It's, it's you know. know. You can't like Gothic villains are twirling their moustaches. You know they they're not they're not apparitions in the mist. You can't like an an ambiguous ending and complain that films are too subtle. Those two things are not together. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm I'm changing the dialogue. I'm changing the dialogue. <laughs> anyway, the, the next section could possibly last for an hour, but we'll try to limit it when we're talking about other gothic horrors. So for me, I'm only going to mention two. There are millions I could mention, but I'm only mentioning two. I mentioned F.W. Murnau's Nosferatu and the Hammer Horror, Curse of Frankenstein. You know, they are the other two films I would have selected. But what about you, Ben? Other gothic horrors we could have done? Well, there are quite a lot, but the, the yeah. one that, I, that I'm going to champion that, that I think is really underappreciated, The Legend of Hell House. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a, a, a Christmas movie because it's set in the week before Christmas. So whenever anyone pops up on social media and says, what's your favourite Christmas movie? And they all say, Die Hard. You've got to rattle this bad boy in because it's set in a tw- I think it's set on Christmas Eve and there's no mention of Christmas whatsoever. Um, and this is a, a, a classic that sort of um, gothic horror. There's, it's set inside a stately home and there's all the things we're talking about shadows and, you know, sort of paranormal sort of things going on. Um, and it's an absolutely cracking. Uh, it, 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 it wears you down as a film. You come out of that film exhausted. Um, and it's for that reason, you know, it it it's one of those experience films. You think, yeah, it, it. I'm not saying it's necessarily, you know, a ten out of ten or a five out of five, but it, it's one of those films that if you reading the book as well. I mean, ironically, as a librarian, I don't read a lot of books, but um, um, it it's one of those novels that's been kind of made into a film that's just as good as the book. So yeah, Legend of Hell House. If you've uh, not read that, I've not seen it either. I definitely need to see that. 
yeah, give it give it a go. You'll um you'll you'll really um uh well, I'm not gonna say really enjoy it, but um it's it's definitely an immersive experience. Um there's a lot going on in there. Um, for the gothic horrors. The, the obvious one to stand out for me is uh, the Devil's Backbone, but realistically, you could throw in almost any Del Toro. I say almost because because not all, obviously, but like almost any of the Del Toro horrors. I think you could you could throw in it easy. But for me, the orphanage. I, is I think. Go on. Well, I, I think with uh, Del Toro, when he does try to do gothic in the most pure sense, right? Crimson Peak, which is his worst film yeah. by miles. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I would say um, The Devil's Backbone is gothic horror in, in a Spanish Civil War setting, which is, you know, it's unique in that sense. That would be the big Rebecca, you've already mentioned, but Rebecca, I think, would be being with a shout as well. Um, there's a few others that you could, you could bat that um, I'm sure you would. I thought you'd go a little bit more off-piste as you tend to do. I think you could certainly go in a bat for uh, Suspiria being um, a gothic horror in some sense and the pit and the pendulum. Uh, but for me, it, it was always going to be this. This is one of my favourite films. So as soon as I seen that, it was it was the first one I wrote down. You know, Suspiria is a gothic horror, isn't it? You know, when when we do Giallo in a, uh, a few episodes time, uh, you know, kind of, I'm picking a film that isn't a Giallo, you know, just to be absolutely uh, within uh, character. But, uh, you know, and I, like I said, I could have picked whether in Heights, uh, Rebecca, these are all, you know, kind of, I, f- I think the house having an animus is, is key to it uh, with a lot of these. Um. And so that's all that's left then is uh, Ben to give us your your roundup and your final verdict on which film you enjoyed the most. Um, well, you've picked two cracking films. This is really hard. And I'm not going to lie because uh, you know both these films are, are, are very uh, you know sort of highly rated. But I'm going to have to go with the Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, I just think it's it's of the two comparatively, you know, having to pick one, it's the better film. I Probably rate them nine versus eight, so I'll give Brad Frankenstein nine and the Innocence eight. Um, I think it stood the test of the time better, albeit a longer period of time, admittedly. Um, but you know, it, it's iconic. It's um, you know, there's an awful lot uh, going on that we can talk about in both. But um, yeah, that's my choice. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always going to use that cobble thing of saying, well, you, it's just because you didn't understand it. You, you, you didn't see it for what it was. <laughs> and I, I think the only thing, what lets the innocence down, it is too subtle. It's, you know, and it, if you compare it to something like Repulsion, where two films where is it, isn't it? It's a much better film than being, you know, like you're up against a film which is absolutely just dialed up to, you know, 600 from the start, and it's, uh, but also it's less visually iconic. I think as much as the black and white is beautiful, it's the only, uh, yeah, I can't imagine what that film would be like on a, a cinema screen. Yeah. I, I reckon if I saw The Innocence on a cinema screen, I'd be blown away. Hmm. I, I agree. don't think I've ever seen a film that contrasts the black and the white so well together. So that, that, that scene where she's wandering with the candelabra, it is mm. unbelievable. Like it, I say, it almost looks like it's painted 
I, I've never seen it, it, it. It's two colors. There's very little gray in it. Well, both of them, you know, kind of uh, Ben's studied uh, film theory, I've studied history of art. You know, both of them have Joseph Wright of Derby energy about the, the way you like this use. You know, there's, there's mm-hmm. lots of that going on. Uh, that, I'm gonna. I, I'd have to take your word for that one. I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm gonna play the. The only time my degree is ever useful, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> if it doesn't look like Caravaggio, which some of it does, then I, I, I don't know what's going on. Well, Joseph Wright the Derby. If you like Caravaggio, absolutely up your uh, up your thing. I'd recommend uh, experiment uh, with an air pump by uh, Joseph Wright the Derby. <laughs> Welcome to Gavin Steph versus the uh, paintings on canvas. <laughs> uh, so that's all that's left is for me to say my thank yous. Gav, thank you for always uh, for being opposite me and a, a fantastic win. Well done. Uh, thank you, Ben, for joining us. A fantastic guest again. Uh, just remind us, where can we, where can we find you? Uh, my absolute pleasure. And uh, just to say, I'm a co-host of uh, Rated Edge podcast and uh, the House of Hammer podcast, both of which are easily findable uh, on Twitter and online more generally. But uh, just a reiterate, guides, thank you very much for having me back again. And, uh, you know, I, I love all you do. So it's been good to be here again. Cheers, mate. It's been absolutely fantastic having you. And finally, of course, thanks to you for listening. Thanks very much. Bye now. <laughs>